welcome back to another episode of Fantasy Baseball Buds. I'm your host, Richie. Joining me as always is Matt. Today is March 29th, a Tuesday night. We got a long show for you guys. We got some news and notes. We're going to go over some spring training uh, updates. And then Matt and I had our dynasty draft since the last time we talked to you guys. I also had my categories draft, which was snake draft. Our dynasty was a salary cap, so we'll go over what happened in that draft, what we liked, what we didn't like, uh, the best steals of the draft that we both liked, whether they were on our team or not, and then we'll finish up the show with our relief pitching rankings to close out all of our positions, but first, let's welcome Matt. Matt, how are you doing? What's going on? Yeah, man, it, uh, we're, this is our second year doing this, and this episode particularly Finally, feels like the reason we wanted to start doing this. We have spring training news and notes. We have spring training leaderboards. We have some of the big performances coming out of spring the last week and a half. And it's just fun to kindly, kind of fi- like finally feel back. I feel like last year after the COVID-shortened season of 2020 really put a damper on some of the expectations coming into camp. And then the performances in camp, you saw injuries, you were concerned with injuries, you were fearful of injuries. And then on top of that, you had very few young players actually getting the opportunity to actually break camp. And this year we have a plethora of names that are performing and are kind of on the rise, pushing that bubble to make their team. That's why I love base about baseball. That's what I love about fantasy baseball, being able to find the younger guys that can make the impact. And I think we have a lot of them that we're going to talk about today, but it just feels good to be back to what is a semblance of normalcy in spring training heading into this season of major league baseball. Yeah, I'm getting excited. We're just over a week away from opening day. Now that a uh, majority of our drafts are done, I'm ready to get going. We've been kind of ball hawking or, or eye hawking, I should say. Uh, the waiver wire waiting for our players to hit the aisle. I'm waiting for Ronald Acuna. You're waiting for Chris Sale just so we can pick up some other guys. We'll talk about uh, some of these players in spring training and the updates we have for you guys. But we've been getting sniped. We've been... Uh, kind of just waiting and we're watching our players get sniped off the waiver wire. So uh, let, let's get into it. We'll go over some injuries first and then we'll get into the spring training leaders. So the first one, Luis Severino was scratched today with a general arm soreness. That's not a good sign. Chris Sale stated he's feeling a lot better and he plans on resuming throwing next week, which I think is great for us. I think we were all worried he would be out for a long, a long period of time, multiple months. Cabrian Hayes is listed as day-to-day with a minor ankle sprain. Personally, I don't like that. I'm starting to see um, a pattern here. Last year it was the wrist. Now this with the ankle, I'm starting to worry, is this the next Byron Buxton, somebody who just can't stay healthy? So I'm concerned about that. Andrew Vaughn is out one to two weeks with a hip hip pointer, and he needed to be carted off the field. Uh, so hopefully that's uh, not too serious of an injury and it doesn't lag for him the rest of the season. Luis Urias for the Brewers will begin the season on the 10-day IL with a strain left quad. So hopefully he can come back. And then Brent Honeywell will need surgery to fix a stress fracture in his elbow. Sad to see Brent Honeywell's a longtime favorite of mine a prospect I've liked for multiple years and just wish he could stay healthy. So it's just kind of sad to see him have this many injuries year after year after year. So with all these injuries, Mets, what are your takeaways here? Yeah, it's tough. We'll start with Hennywell. Um, I mean, how many years have we been watching him? I'd say five years now, at least, you know, dating all the way back to the Rays system. We were so high on him. His pitch mix, I think he throws six pitches um and it's just it's devastating you know this is the second stress fracture i think he's had tj twice already i want to say he's 26 years old honestly this is a career ender in my opinion i I don't know that he can make another comeback moving on to severino um honestly i'm not going to be overly concerned here i'm not going to overreact i think coming back from the shoulder from tj from the lat issue we're going to see this probably throughout the year this is going to be his build-up season You know, can he get in 15 starts? Can he avoid serious injury? If he can, expect for him to come back in 2023 and I think actually give you the production and possibly the durability you're looking for. But if you're drafting Luis Severino this season for him to be an anchor in your rotation or your RP eligible SPARP to ride you into the playoffs, it's just, in my opinion, not going to happen. He is not built up. He's not where Chris Sale was last year coming back from Tommy John surgery and he has the, the shoulder issue. So 
Severino, you're going to have to take a patient approach for him. He's going to have to be a guy that you're just happy with being able to put in your roster when you can this season. And then finally, to wrap up these injuries, um, Chris Sale, I think this is kind of my timeline, you know, to have a stress fracture in the rib cage. It is what it is, depending on if you got hit by a car or, you know, if you broke your ribs sneezing, there's a big difference in that injury. And I think we're starting to see the reality that Chris Sale's stress fracture wasn't really as bad as some of the analysts have said that it was. Um, Andrew Vaughn, obviously avoiding a catastrophe injury there. I think a lot of people expected it to be a knee injury, possibly a torn labrum in that hip. For it to only be a pointer is huge for the White Sox, also huge for his development this season. I think, you know, keep him on your bench in the late rounds uh, could be a guy that we actually see perform like we had expected to last season. Yeah, and just a couple more points. Things I worry about with Severino is maybe he isn't a starter this year. Maybe they use him as a middle reliever or near the end of, uh, in high leverage situations. And then with Andrew Vaughn, now I fear him playing in the outfield. Maybe they just use him at DH uh, for majority of the season. But moving on, we've got a lot of spring training updates to talk about. So I'll go through some of these and then we'll get some takes and then uh, we'll finish up. Uh, so the first one, Riley Green and Spencer Torkelson appear to be in line for the opening day roster, which is good. Hunter Green and Nick Lodolo might be in the opening day rotations. Nothing is confirmed yet. We also need to see how this last week of spring training goes and their development. Edward Cabrera, through his first spring training outing, went three scoreless innings with three strikeouts. Matt Brash has been kind of a name popping up on everybody's radar. He had three innings with six strikeouts, zero hits, over five and all together for spring training, five scoreless innings and seven strikeouts. It's looking like he might get that last rotation spot in the Seattle Mariners. I know he's been battling out with George Kirby, but George Kirby had a horrible outing his first time out and a halfway decent one his second time. Spencer Strider, four and a third innings with four hits, zero earned runs, five strikeouts, and two walks. With his uh, recent outing, the Braves are considering going to a six-man rotation. He's also battling with Huskar Yanoa and Kyle Wright, who appear to be the front-line winners so far for that fourth and fifth spots. But he's now duking it out with Tucker Davidson, who's gone five innings with eight strikeouts, a .8 whip, and a 3.6 ERA. So it kind of threw a lot out at there, Matt. Um, a lot of it pitching-related. What do you see here, and who do you like? So I actually want to just bring up Matt Brash for a minute here um, in regards to players to be named later. Brash was actually a player to be named later in a trade from the Padres to the Seattle Mariners. It looks like in 2020, Brash was uh, ultimately the player to be named in a trade that sent Taylor Williams to the Padres. And I just want to kind of you know hint on here. This is how important Major League Baseball player to be named later prospects can be, right? Guys that are developing, guys that have a certain approach on the mound that you like as an organization and you say, hey, you know what? He may not be the top of the line prospect that everyone is expecting to come up and be a number one, but we like what he has and we think we can develop him. That's exactly what Brash did. And if you look at his delivery and you look at some of the other Mariners delivery, they're very they're cut from the same cloth in a lot of ways. You look at Gilbert, uh, Emerson Hancock, George Kirby, the release point really comes down as low as possible. And that's what Brash does as well. Throws very hard, has a good arsenal of cut fastball as well as a slider. Brash ultimately is going to be a high strikeout guy. I think if he doesn't land this rotation spot early out of camp, I think what we're going to see Brash probably come up in June or July, be that stretch out guy in the back of the bullpen where he can go two, three innings and possibly, like you said, pitch high leverage like Severino might be and look for Brash to make an absolute splash next year. But Brash's arsenal and his ability on the mound, they're, they're devastating. Um, control will be the big facet for him coming into the rotation if it happens right out of spring or later this season into next year. I think the same things can be said about Hunter Green. Hunter Green, you know, high-velocity pitcher. If you look at his spring numbers, though, he's still getting hit hard. For whatever reason, he has trouble with the home run ball. That will not translate well uh, to Great American Park there in Cincinnati. And then Lodolo. Lodolo, I think, probably actually wins this job. He is a college pedigree pitcher, unlike Hunter Green, who was a high school arm taken. I think Lodolo's spot is the guy like you will look for maybe as your sixth starter or kind of a swing starter in fantasy drafts. But again, you have to be mindful of that of that ballpark. Uh, and then kind of like sliding down to uh, Spencer Strider here and Tucker Davidson. Spencer Strider, the way I spoke about um, Matt Brash, same exact player almost, you know, high strikeout ability, throws the ball hard. 
I think Davidson probably wins this job, though. Davidson is 26. He has more minor league pedigree. He's been in camp with the Braves last year, this year. Uh, I think his ability to be in the ball in the clubhouse as well as just his uh, mound presence will probably win him the job. But I do expect Strider to make an impact this year. And this is what's great about spring. You have a couple of these guys coming out that, honestly, Strider, Brash, I didn't really know about coming into this spring. I've kept my eye on each box score. And they're catching my eye. You know, uh, Mackenzie Gore is another guy that's had an absolutely fantastic spring, was a top-tier prospect, has kind of fallen off. And I think these three, four players are going to make an impact in fantasy this year. It's just a matter of does it happen out of the gates or do we see these guys swing back around in late July and these pickups start happening again? Yeah, and Spencer Strider and Matt Brash, those are the two guys I mentioned earlier in the podcast when I said we got uh, sniped on the waiver wire. Uh, for me personally, Matt Brash and Spencer Strider were people I were, was looking at uh, p- potentially picking up. So it's a little sad to see them get uh, picked up. I believe Spencer Strider also had the highest K per nine rate in the minors last year, um, which is also something to note. He's got a filthy slider and a fastball. If he can just develop a third pitch, I think he could be phenomenal. Well, and to the... Well, to the credit of you know other teams sniping us, this is exactly the type of player you want to target in dynasty leagues, right? Like these are the guys that if you pick them up, could easily become that top thirty, top forty pitcher just on the ability alone, right? They're on for the most part good teams. The Braves and the Mariners are expected to compete this season. The Braves are coming off a world title. And if you can get these guys to fill a sixth rotation spot or a fifth rotation spot within their team's needs, they could elevate themselves, stay healthy all year, and pitch a 3-5 ERA. That's what you're looking for in Dynasty Leagues or 15-team redraft teams. Like These are the guys that can make or break your season right here. Absolutely. And if you're talking keeping them for a long term, you know they might have some growing pains along the season, but who knows what could happen next year. Let's move along now to some more hitters from spring training. So we got Joe Adele batting 280 with during 25 at bats, seven strikeouts for a 28% K rate. You'd like to see that come down a little bit more. Notorious for striking out last year, but made some improvements near the end of the year. But he does have three home runs with three stolen bases, which is good to see. Still need to see a little bit more limited sample size. Moving on to O'Neill Cruz batting 333 over 15 at bats with two home runs. So that is good to see. The power is legit. Um, Still need to see a little bit more as far as the sample size. Bobby Witt has been killing it in spring training so far. Only 21 at-bats, but he is batting 476 with two home runs, six RBIs, and a stolen base. I'd be shocked if he didn't uh, start on the opening day roster for the Royals. There's talk of him moving to third base while Mondesi plays short for the two games that he's healthy for, and then he'll move back to shortstop. Um, Jorge Alfaro uh, is batting 400 with four home runs. He's on a new team now with the Padres, so that's good to see. Maybe a new change of scenery, a new team, new atmosphere is all he needed. Francisco Lindor, I hate to say it because of our bet that we have. I have a bet with Matt saying that Dansby Swanson will hit more home runs than Francisco Lindor. I can't remember how much we bet on it. I say $10, he says 20 But so far, it's not looking good for me. So far in spring training, Lindor is batting 474 over 19 at-bats with four home runs, two doubles, 10 RBIs, and only three strikeouts. Moving on, Bryson Stott, the Philadelphia Phillies, is batting 533 with a one home run over 15 at-bats. There's a possibility that he can break camp and take over third base. Um, Probably not going to hit for much power, um, but he is going to give you a safe floor as far as batting average. And then lastly, Jeremy Pena, shortstop for the Houston Astros, is batting 364 over 11 at-bats. And most notably, he's been batting in the leadoff spot. Um, and he could be a breakout, um, somebody who's kind of been blocked by Carlos Correa there, um, obviously a superstar now in Minnesota. So maybe this is the time for him to shine, and he's just been waiting for his his time. So, Matt, I kind of threw a lot at you, but what are the names that you like, aside from Francisco Lindor, that should be on people's radars. 
Yeah, so I'll kind of break down one each individually. Joe Adele, I like what we're seeing this spring, the three home runs. Obviously, the power is translating from the past few seasons in the minor leagues. I expect Joe Adele to get enough playing time with the Angels this season to have an impact in fantasy. My question is that 28% strikeout rate in, in spring training, is that going to go up when he faces more of the upper echelon pitchers of Major League Baseball? I think right now he is worth rostering him. You did pick him up this week. Um, I think it's a wait and see. I would not be comfortable throwing him in and starting him to kind of kick off the year. But at the same time, he could go on an explosive tear where he hits 11 home runs in April. I do expect regression, though. He's going to battle that strikeout issue at least the first year, year and a half, as he's a starter regularly in that um, Angels lineup. So just keep your eye on that and be mindful. O'Neill Cruz is not expected to make the Major League roster. I think what we're seeing from O'Neill Cruz is similar to uh, a lot of the young breakout players of spring training, he's ready. It's time to bring him up, but there's absolutely no benefit to the Pirates organization to allow him to burn a year of service time or to possibly bring him up and win the Rookie of the Year, which then awards him a year of um, negatively subtracted service time from his overall clock. So I think when O'Neill Cruz comes up, which I expect to be end of April, early May, we're going to see a guy that probably has the ability of hitting 280 with a good amount of prodigious power. This could be a guy similar to Aaron Judge with his exit velo and just his raw athleticism that makes a serious impact right away. I would like to see him moved off short. Uh, Pittsburgh Pirates have talked about as an organization possibly playing him in the outfield. I think that 6-7 frame would be much better suited in the outfield. I think lower back injuries we've seen from Carlos Correa as a taller shortstop can happen. And at 6-7, I'm worried about that lower back. Bobby Witt's the real deal, I think. I think we're going to watch this kid ascend to, you know, a star in this league this season. I think Rookie of the Year in the AL is almost locked up for him. Jorge Alfaro, a good name to watch. Catcher position there with the Padres is kind of um, up for grabs. You know, they have Austin Hedges there as well. Is it Austin Hedges or Austin Nola, Richie? It's Austin Nola that there that's... Uh down in San Diego okay. with Alfaro. So they do have, they're going to have some time split, I feel like, behind the plate. But watching Jorge Alfaro, this is why the Marlins traded for him. This was supposed to be the original concept. You get a guy that's going to be a lock, stock, center shortstop that can hit 25 home runs and hit 270. We just didn't see enough consistency down there in Miami. But he is having a good spring. So I could see some at-bats at the DH position. They may even be a little bit flexible with moving him around. I know first base with Voight there is kind of locked up now, but uh, it would be interesting to see how many times he can get in the lineup. Just not yet a guy I think you can roster with the expectation of pulling stats out of that catcher position. Bryson Stott there with the Phillies. Um, I love Stott for one specific reason. It's the fact that he's paired with Bryce Harper there. Stott with a UNLV kid, a good college shortstop, got drafted by the Phillies. Phillies obviously signed Bryce Harper. Harper still lives out here in Vegas. And I think that the relationship that those two share, working out together every offseason, as well as when you really look at their swing, they both have a very violent, hard swing. I think Harper's ability to elevate himself to an MVP, obviously, and then have his leadership skills could translate to Bryson Stott being a very good uh, major league hitter because he has that partnership. Had Harper not been on the Phillies, I wouldn't feel the same way about Stott, but Stott's a guy that I'd like to grow into a perennial Trevor Story type power hitter. Uh, and then Peña, I think, yes, obviously with the top of the road, uh, top of the batting lineup opportunity there in Houston, could hit 280, could have 10 home runs, could get a lot of counting stats as well. So a couple really good, fun prospects to keep an eye on as well as possibly a catcher down the road that you may want to pick up and stream for a few weeks. Yeah, I definitely agree with everything you said. Let's move on now to our drafts that we had this past week. So we'll start off with our salary cap dynasty draft. I had six spots to fill with about 28 bucks, and you had five spots with, what, 75 85 bucks. So uh, just a quick breakdown for the listeners. I landed Francisco Lindor um, for $18. Uh, $2 O'Neill Cruz, who I then traded to you, Matt, for a $6 Tyler Malley. A $1 Alex Kirloff. A $1 George Kirby. A $1 Edward Cabrera. And a $1 Reed Detmers, who I then ended up dropping for Joe Adele on Fab for a dollar. And then you ended up with a $35 Justin Verlander. $15 Jack Flaherty, a $10 Seiya Suzuki, a $9 Jordan Romano, and then I don't know how you did it, but you ended up with Yasmani Grandal for $6. So, Matt, who was your favorite pick, and what were you the most surprised about ending up with on your team? So, 
I got really everyone I wanted to. I had a, uh, every draft, Richie and I, we will build out a draft roadmap really to identify a who we want positionally, who's going to be available, price point and price range that we're comfortable with, and then that roadmap will deviate throughout the draft. And this draft, I actually did not have to deviate at all. Um, I did not land Mackenzie Gore or. Um, who was the other one, Richie, that I really, really, really wanted? It was Mike Soroka, who I could have IL'd. I think Mike Soroka comes back. Uh, well, O'Neill Cruz, too, but you ended up with him anyway. Correct, which was kind of a blessing in disguise. Um, but I think out of all of these players, my favorite per dollar per pick is probably Lindor. You know, we've talked about Lindor a little bit on this podcast. You and I have the bet, and I was certain that this season was going to be a bounce back for Lindor. I think at $18, you've got a guy that I would personally value at about $35 in a draft because I am that confident he's going to have a great season. It's a season that we've been hoping for from Bellinger and Yelich and just haven't seen them come back to form. But I think what spring training is telling us about Lindor was last season was a fluke. 2020 was a fluke. He just needed to get his head right. He needed to commit to the uh, Mets organization and be comfortable in a new market. And if we see this translation from spring to pro ball, we're going to see the guy that's hitting 315 with 35 home runs again. And that is the MVP opportunist that is Francisco Lindor. And then from there, I'd say, honestly, $35 for uh, Verlander was a good price for me, the 15 for Flaherty. But I really think... Uh, I think O'Neill Cruz, the trade that we made. I love O'Neill Cruz. I'm buying the physical attributes as well as the exit velo that we're seeing come off his bat as possibly a guy that I'm going to watch and enjoy watching for years to come. Um, and then I love Alex Kirloff at a dollar. You know, this is a guy that's going to be a steady starter for that Twins lineup. There's added talent to that Twins lineup in Carlos Correa. And I think as Jose Miranda comes up, you're going to start to see this youth movement with a lot of counting stat opportunities from Kirloff. And having the versatility of possibly playing first, possibly playing in the outfield, he should be in the lineup for 140 games this year. Yeah, and as you mentioned with the roadmap, I kind of tried throwing you off a little bit of what my original plan was. I know off the air I was telling you I was trying to go for Willie Adamas and maybe pick up a few other 5 to $10 players. But my actual plan was I my team in this league is very weak at third base. I have only Cabrian Hayes. And at shortstop, I'm also weak. All I have is Brendan Rodgers, who I'm hoping for a breakout and continues. However, I'd like to be a little more steady as I am kind of in that window of competing, not really rebuilding or retooling. So Nolan Arenado and Anthony Rendon were the, the main upgrades at third base. I knew I wasn't going to get Nolan Arenado because there's other teams in the league that had a lot more money than I did. But I was kind of hoping that Anthony Rendon would get nominated before Francisco Lindor or Trevor Story, who were the two more so elite shortstops, top 10 shortstops that were available. Uh, the next best was Willie Adamas. So I knew the rest of my draft consisted of one to two or three dollar prospects or uh, lesser hitters, if you will. I'm kind of hoping for that breakout or potentially players that I want to rebuild on. And so it just happened to be Francisco Lindor was the first one nominated out of Anthony Rendon, Francisco Lindor, and Trevor Story. And just for salary cap, salary cap purposes, I've noticed through my experiences, you always want to take the first guy who's nominated because people are hesitant to bid on those guys because everybody's got money. Everybody wants to see what the market's going to be set at, what players are actually going to go. And typically those players will always end up going for a lot less. I think Trevor story ended up going for 25 to 30, some bucks, Anthony Rendon, Rendon, I think ended up with 20, 21 bucks. So I could have landed him, um, but he's also injury prone. And like you said, Matt Francisco Lindor is looking like the right move for me. Well, so, and if you if you really put the numbers on the on the table, right, like you put their ceilings down on paper, I think Lindor is the no brainer. He's the only guy out of those three that consistently without the juice ball hit 300. And then you pair that with the fact that he also has the ability to hit 35 home runs with 100 RBIs like that's the best third baseman around, right? That's Rafi Devers. That just means then your third baseman has to give you what a good shortstop would do. And I think you can make that trade. I think for $18, I think you stole Lindor. And yeah, we, we shall see. I'm going to be weak at third base regardless. But I do love our O'Neill Cruz, Tyler Malley trade. Um, 
I wouldn't say I'm thin on pitching, but I personally like to have depth. I like to have all six of my starting pitcher slots filled with top-tier guys, and then I like to have one or two bench guys who have high ceilings and high floors. Um, so I think that worked out well for me. I also have Marco Luciano, I had Lindor, and I have uh, Brendan Rodgers, as I mentioned. So I didn't need a fourth shortstop in O'Neill Cruz, so I think that worked out well for us. Personally, I didn't like your Justin Verlander pick for the simple fact I think you could have landed him for 20 to 30 bucks. Um, but it was an interesting tactic by you just throwing him out there right away for $35. I think that scared people off. The ticker on the the, the timer, the 10-second timer, I think had people worried about if they should make the move. Is he worth it? And by the time they had a chance to decide, you had already won him. So we'll never know. Um, it, but... was, it was bold. And honestly... I don't know how it worked out, but I, I did end up getting the players I ultimately wanted, right? I talked about Mackenzie Gore as well as Soroka. Those were really guys that if I couldn't get Verlander and Flaherty, which I thought would be impossible, would be guys that I would be like, okay, I can draft these guys and hope to get some kind of production out of them. And honestly, I, I think Flaherty, or excuse me, I think Verlander, if it's if this isn't his last year, next year will be, right? And if he performs like Verlander, I'm okay keeping him for $40, especially with Garrett Cole's struggles. Like Garrett Cole is the ace of my dynasty team. If he has another poor season from an ace perspective, I will be looking to move on for him. Um, the last note that I want to make about the draft is Seiyu Suzuki is not having a good spring. Temper your expectations. I think the translation to, to American ball here is going to take a little bit of time for Suzuki. You and I talked about this off the air. Will the swing translate with the upper velocity that we're seeing here in the States? In the correlation where you look at him in the Japan League, it's a lot more breaking pitches. I do think it will translate, but it's going to take him time to find his timing. And I think all of April, he's going to be working on that. It may even take him into May and into June, but I do expect Suzuki to have a period of time or a stretch run towards the end of the season where he is winning leagues. Uh, I think this kid has so much talent. You just got to be patient. You know, if you have struggles early out of the gate, don't drop him. Maybe move him to your bench because I do have a lot of faith in him. Yeah, I'm a little torn on Suzuki. Other than Shohei Itani, people coming over from uh, across the pond don't really seem to translate well, in my opinion, and I'm a little skeptical. I need to see it before I believe it, but that's just my personal thoughts and beliefs. Um, enough about mine and yours, team. Let's talk about uh, somebody else's team. Who was uh, a player that uh, got drafted in our salary cap that you thought was a great steal? Yeah, I think um, I think our good friend Jackson being able to get Charlie Morton at $36. I personally would have rather had Verlander. Uh, I think the upside of Verlander with the repetitive pedigree of Verlander was better and a dollar cheaper. But Morton was the first guy nominated. You kind of said that, especially with pitching. It's kind of the contrast. Pitching, the first number one pitcher that goes to the nomination board always gets bid up. Second guy is usually that uh, variable value, and that was Verlander. But Jackson was able to grab Gore and Soroka. You know, Jackson Jackson drafted with me. I'd kind of talked to him about what my plan in the draft was, which was Gore and Soroka had I not been able to get a couple guys. I view if Mackenzie Gore can get a rotational spot out of spring, he could be a 3-5, 3-2-5 ERA guy. I think they have fixed his mechanics at $3 in a keeper league, dynasty league. He was an absolute steal. Then Soroka, we know the Achilles, multiple surgeries, he's had issues, right? But this wasn't an upper body injury. This wasn't an elbow. This wasn't a shoulder. This wasn't a lat. I expect if he can get that leg right, he will come back and be that top 20, top 30 pitcher that he was before the injury. And at $3 to be able to slide him into your IL spot right away, I thought was an absolute steal. Uh, a couple guys uh, also that were steals, I thought Willie Adamas at $7, Corey Knable at $1. There is some uncertainty there in Philly. They have a big, deep bullpen. He could lose his job at any time. The worst pick, though, I thought in the draft, this, remember this is a dynasty league, uh, Jordan Groshan for the Blue Jays was taken for $1. And it's not the dollar that really bothered me. It was the roster spot. The Toronto Blue Jays have absolutely nowhere to play Jordan Groshan. And Gr Jordan Groshan has also not developed in the way that we expected him to. He has tremendous raw power does not translate to in-game baseball. I uh, have not seen it in the minor leagues. So when you got a guy that doesn't have a lot of speed, hits for average, but is supposed to be a power hitter and is not hitting home runs, to me it's a wasted roster spot. 
Yeah, for me, there's two teams that stand out as far as good picks and bad picks. Um, happens to be the same team that sniped uh, Matt Brash and uh, Spencer Strider from us, Whiskey Heads, a uh, friend of ours, Tanner. I like that he got Joey Votto for $5. I think that was a steal. And then Starling Marte for $3. He has that injury concern, but it's looking like he'll be ready for opening day. We do play in points, so it's not category, so Starling Marte doesn't have that much upside. But for $3, you can't go wrong. And then the other team is shared by Nate and Greg in this league. I like that they got Jazz Chisholm for a dollar and Corey Kluber for a dollar. Um, yeah, Jazz Chisholm has some downside, but his ceiling is immense, especially in this Dynasty League. I think that was an absolute steal. Um, but I also think they had the worst uh, player drafted in Cody Bellinger for $20. It's looking like he's not the same person. Spring training, he's doing horrible, trying to mess with his mechanics again, batting under 100. So I hope he can figure it out. But right now, it looks like that $20 has all but gone wasted. Yeah, Bellinger is uh, is not doing himself any favors this spring. 23 at-bats. He has three hits, batting 130. His uh, OBP is 167, and his OPS is 297. Uh, I don't have his strikeout numbers in front of me because, of course, MajorLeagueBaseball.com is not the uh, not the expert or the savant, no pun intended. But uh, I, honestly, man, I expected Bellinger to make a bounce back this year, not to the MVP form, but at least to like, hey, he's a startable fantasy player, even in 10-man leagues. And I, I really don't know what's going on with him, with him this spring. The expectation was that he was going to rework his mechanics coming into camp and if this is just a learning curve for him, you know, that I think that will translate into the regular season. And who knows? Maybe by mid-April, he's start, like, starting to find his timing. He's starting to find the ability to make uh, barrel contact. But you're right, $20 for Cody Bellinger, just not worth it when you're getting Nick Castellanos for $23 in this draft. Yeah, I, I agree. But hopefully he figures it out. Uh, before we move on to relief pitching um, rankings, I do want to just quickly go over my categories league that I drafted. I'm going to run through it real quick. Um, it's a 10-team, 6x6 six six league with quality starts and saves and holds. Um, I had the back-end pick. I had the 10 and 11, the swing turn. So I started out with going with a Ronald Acuna and Corbin Burns somehow fell to me. So I liked having that. Um and then from there, it kind of spiraled out of control. I wasn't anticipating Ozzy Albies to fall, all the starting pitching to fall, and Chris Bryant went way earlier than he thought than I thought. So kind of went out the window. But my overall team ended up with Dalton Varsho at catcher, CJ Crone at first, Ozzy Albies at second, Austin Riley at third, Tim Anderson at short, Bobby Witt as my infielder. My outfield consists of Whit Merrifield, Eloy Jimenez. Tyler O'Neill, Alex Kirloff, my DH is Nelson Cruz, and then on my bench I have Ronald Acuna, Adalberto Mondesi, and Luke Voigt. So out of the hitters, I kind of went with a lot of power speed, a lot of guys like Tyler O'Neill, Nelson Cruz, Luke Voigt, give me that power, um, CJ Crone, and then the speed guys, Dalton Varsho, um, as an outfielder playing catcher will help with Merrifield, Tim Anderson, Ozzy Albies, not the fastest guys, but you know, they're going to get you around 20. And then Adalberto Mondesi somehow slipped all the way in the draft. I got him past pick 200. I just think it was something with ESPN's rankings. Um, I think they were going off a of points league rate. Uh, rankings rather than categories so I had to quickly pivot and change my approach because I was not anticipating that and then for my pitchers I have Corbin Burns, Aaron Nola, Zach Wheeler, Clayton Kershaw, Justin Verlander, Noah Syndergaard, Patrick Sandoval, Jesus Lazardo. Um, and then for relievers, since it is saves and holds I have Paul Sewald kind of in a committee with the Mariners, Andrew Kittredge, not officially the closer for the Rays, but it's looking like it. Even if he's not, he's going to be their eighth inning guy. So I love that. Robert Suarez for the Padres, same thing. Not officially the closer, but I wouldn't be surprised if he's in that high leverage setup role. Rossiel Iglesias is my main relief pitcher. And then Craig Kimbrell, also set up for the White Sox if he doesn't get traded. I just loaded up on these high-end pitchers that are in the setup role, hoping that they take over the role. And then um, kind of for my strategy is I like to have one of those top five relief pitchers. And then one of those guys right in that 15 to 20 range where um, 
you don't really know if they're going to come out on top, but you still have that anchor at one relief pitcher and then a bunch of setup guys. So that was kind of my overall approach, kind of well-balanced. I've got plenty of starting pitchers that I think can go six innings and give me those quality starts. And then hopefully I just get a bunch of holds. So Matt kind of threw a lot at you there, but what do you think of my overall team here? Yeah, I mean, I think when you're looking at a categories league, you really went out about it the, the proper way. Um, and those five by five, so six by six, you know, sometimes those quality starts and those holds and saves can, can dictate whether it's a five by five or six by six. But your, your big change was being able to get Alberto Mondesi. In my opinion, you have enough guys in your lineup that are going to not only hit for average and have that OBP ability, uh, but also hit for power, which are going to, of course, count for runs and RBIs. Getting Alberto Mondesi basically guarantees you the ability to win steals. Uh, you're going to have to obviously monitor throughout the season his playing time. You know, can he actually hit for average? And more importantly, can he stay healthy? I think Bobby Witt being in that lineup, ultimately MJ Melendez, as the season moves forward, will add more power to the lineup. You know, he'll be on base. He'll have the opportunity to score more runs, which will, of course, help in the category position. Um, but I think also what you did was you drafted enough average to be able to allow him into your lineup. You know, that's one of the big things when you draft Alberto Mondesi. Do you really have the guys that can protect his negative variable outcomes, which is going to be average in power, RBIs, you know, and sometimes runs if he can't stay healthy? I think you did that. And then in, in regards to the saves and holds, we have been hearing all spring that ultimately closers are going to get more saves usually per season than holds. Holds the, usually the leader in the league is about 20, 22. But I think with drafting Craig Kimbrell with the expectation that he will be a closer, uh, probably closer to the deadline once he can recoup more value for who he is as a player in the White Sox organization, you'll have that lockdown closer as well. I think barring injury, you should be seeing yourself in the top four position of this league. And then, you know, pickups will dictate how the rest of the season goes. The only thing I don't like about my team, and I didn't realize it until after I had missed out on Chris Bryant, and I kind of panicked, was I ended up with Ozzy Albies, Austin Riley, and Ronald Acuna, I think, in my first three out of five picks. So I am very Braves heavy. So if they're off or they have short games or something happens or they're facing Jacob deGrom, I'm not going to get much production out of those guys. And honestly, I kind of like to diversify and have multiple players on different teams. Um, and the same goes for Bobby Witt, Whit Merrifield, and Edoberto Mondesi. Three Royals there. I don't know how I feel about that, but it is what it is, and I'll have to play the waiver wire. I mean, ultimately, it can go really well or it can go really bad, right? We'll equate this to uh, fantasy football here. You've got the Braves. You've basically got the Saints. You've got Breeze, Kamara, and Michael Thomas. Like It worked pretty well for people in fantasy football. Obviously a different sport, but... Acuna, Albies, and Riley, you're talking about counting stats with all these guys. One one homers with the other two on base. You know, same thing can be said. One hits a double. There are so many great variables with having those three guys. And I think having those three guys is a plus. I would be a little more concerned about the Royals um, triple tandem that you have. But, you know, you put together a categories team. You can't really sometimes rely on who's in whose lineup. I think it's more of a points league um, dominator. Yeah, we'll have to see. All right, let's move on to our relief pitching ranking. So we got the top 15 for you guys. Um, basically, for the most part, we only did the top 15 because there is a lot of committees out here and we don't know what's going to happen. So we'll start out. I'll go through my top five. We'll go through Matt's top five. We'll kind of say why we're feeling that way and then uh, take it from there. So starting off, I have Josh Hader at one, Liam Hendricks at two, and then I have Rasiel Iglesias at three. Uh, number four, I have Ryan Presley. I think just the Houston Astros losing some guys like Carlos Correa, I think, and George Springer, obviously. I think uh, they're going to be in closer games, and I think that's going to provide more save opportunities for Ryan Presley, and he looked great in his first stint as the full-time closer. Number five, I have Emmanuel Classe, great start, uh, relief pitcher. However, I feel um, the save opportunities aren't going to be the greatest playing for the, the Guardians there. But when he does have the save opportunities, I think he's going to provide great numbers for you. So, Matt, you have a similar but a little bit different order. So why don't you go ahead and take it away? Yeah, so we have Hader and Hendricks, one and two. I think that's the tier drop off. Uh, those are the two lock, lock and dead dominant closers that we see this season and have been for how many years now dating back to Hendricks being on the A's. 
My number three is going to change up a little bit, though. I've actually moved Edwin Diaz into my number three position. I think in that division on that team, Diaz could be looking at 40, 45 saves again, kind of reclaiming that upper echelon tier one closer. Again, you have the Phillies, you have the Braves. You have two really good teams that are going to cause close games, and the Mets are improved this season, right? We talked about Frankie Lindor kind of reestablishing himself this spring as a top-tier shortstop. You have the emergence of Sterling Marte via free agency as well as Mark Hanna, uh, as well as Escobar, who's going to play multiple positions. I think they're going to put up more runs this season, and I think that's going to lead to Diaz having more saves. Number four, I have Rasul Iglesias for the Los Angeles Angels. I think what we saw last year is what we're going to see continuously from him. And kind of as you said with Ryan Presley, it's really the Astros, the Mariners, as well as the Angels in that division. They're going to be battling it out, and they're going to be fighting really hard. Um, I would prefer to take Iglesias because I think ultimately the A's um, – excuse me, the Angels have a worse starting rotation, but a better offense than the Astros. And I think that's going to lead to bigger scoring games as well as to, you know, close competitive games, eight to six, nine to sevens. Uh, so I am going to take Iglesias there at four. And then Ryan Presley finishes off at five. I don't think you're wrong. I just think it's preference based between Iglesias and Presley. Yeah, and I'm not too far off with Edwin Diaz as he's my number six. The main reason why I have him lower is we've seen inconsistencies out of him in the past. And for the simple fact of the New York Mets have bolstered their team out so much that I see a lot of their games ending in blowouts and not that many save opportunities for Edwin Diaz compared to those other closers I mentioned before. I think it's going to be closer games where they're going to be needed a little bit more. But moving on. Since we're talking about him, Edwin Diaz is my number six. My number seven is Kenley Jansen. Now for the Atlanta Braves, I think that is huge for him. Going on with number eight, Blake Trinan. It's not official yet, but it's probably that he's going to be the Dodgers' new closer, which anybody who in the Dodgers' closer is going to be getting saves. Number nine, Giovanni Gallegos for the St. Louis Cardinals. I think in that division, the NL Central, they're going to get a lot of wins. Might have a, a few duke outs with uh, the Milwaukee Brewers and, and in um, some short save opportunities. And then also Alex Reyes is kind of shut down right now, so he's kind of got the role there. And then number 10, rounding it out, is Jordan Romano for the Toronto Blue Jays. Just like what he did last year, but struggled uh, a little bit with some injuries. Um, so I like him as the closer for the Toronto Blue Jays. Now you've got something a little bit similar, but just in a different order. So what do you got here? Yeah, uh, I have Emmanuel Classe at number six. Um, you said it perfectly. If your team isn't good, I'm going to be concerned that ultimately your your ceiling is going to be unmatched from the season before. And Emmanuel Classe playing on the Guardians concerns me. That team is just not very good. They also still have James Karinchek there as well. You know, I don't expect Classe to ever lose the job, but there is a guy behind him who also has incredible arm ability. And Karinchek, you know, Karinchek did concern himself with control last year. Um, but I never like it when a guy's right behind you when you are not a Josh hater. You know, when you're not the number one closer in the game, your, your job is always on the line if you have a bad two-week stretch. So Class A comes in at number six for those reasons. Uh, number seven, I break Blake Trinan for the Dodgers. You said it, you know, not officially announced yet, but I think what Trinan did last year, kind of that uh, reemergence from when he was with the A's, showed that he is ready to be a closer again. And talk about the, the great club to be a closer for. You know, the Dodgers could win 115 games this year. They could blow out their opponent in half of those games, and you know Trinan could still get 45, 50 saves. That's just incredible. I think opportunity is the reason I'm putting him at seven. Uh, number eight coming in, at G Giovanni Gallegos. Uh, love the opportunity there in St. Louis. You said it perfectly. Uh, NL Central, a lot of opportunity to, to win short, um, to win close games there. And Gallegos is a proven dominant reliever. Number nine, I have Jordan Romano. Uh, he did actually have a torn MCL last season that he pitched through. He did kind of comment this spring that he is fully healed from that. I think we're going to see a very good season from the Blue Jays, and that should translate to more saves for Romano. He is a guy, though, that I am concerned that could possibly lose the job. I don't really have names in the back of my head to throw out there uh, as replacements, but the Blue Jays have a good team. He's been a good reliever. I expect that to continue. And then my number 10 is Kenley Jansen. Kenley's getting older. I like him on the Braves, um, but I'm just not fully sold on his ability anymore. I'm going to really know more about Kenley Jansen halfway through the season. I'll probably be moving him up if I can see some consistency. But I felt like that Dodgers team, with the ability to rest him a lot because there were blowouts, really kept him healthy through the last few seasons. 
And there's a reason ultimately they weren't 100% confident in him in the, in the postseason. It's because Jansen isn't that lockdown closer anymore. So I have him sliding to 10. And the reasons why you have him sliding down is the reasons why I have him where I I do. I think he's going to get a little bit more opportunities, and uh, I think that will uh, account for more saves. All right, let's move on to our last 11 through 15, and this is kind of the range where now you start to get a little bit more question marks on, are they the true closer? Can they hold down the role for the whole year? So at number 11, I have Corey Knable for the Phillies. Looks like he's going to be their closer. Um, it's been announced. Um, however, it is the Phillies, and you never know what they're going to do. Number 12, I have Andrew Kittredge. I just am fully um, expecting him to take over that closer role. Pete Fairbanks, I don't think he's much of a competition, always deals with some injury risks. Number 13, Aroldis Chapman. He just scares me with his inconsistencies, and I feel like Chad Green and Jonathan Luizaga could take over some saves, possibly turn into a closer by committee there over in New York. So that's kind of why I have him down at 13 rather than nine or 10. So not too much of a discount. At number 14, I have Joe Barlow, closer for the Texas Rangers. I like what they did uh, with the offseason additions of Corey Seager, Marcus Semien, and John Gray. I think that added offense and that starting pitcher could give them more save opportunities, and he did great last year. It wasn't much of a showing, but he did get 11 saves and registered a 155 ERA, so I think that definitely will help. And then rounding it out for me is Scott Barlow, who is the closer for the Kansas City Royals. I don't know how many saves he's going to get on a rebuilding Royals team, but if they do invest in Bobby Witt, if Mondesi can stay healthy, if MJ Melendez comes up, if Nick Prado comes up, if Salvador Perez can continue what he did, if Zach Greinke can refine his uh, form, I think he will have some save opportunities. Now, that's a lot of what ifs I just threw at you guys, but it could happen, and I could, I wouldn't mind investing uh, in Scott Barlow at a top fifteen price. So, Matt, what are your final five? Yeah, so we have, you know, again, similar here. We have the same five in this classification. Uh, my number 11 is Corey Knable. If he were to keep that job, if he's the closer all season, I think you probably see him right in that Romano Gallegos trinin kind of grouping. Um, I mean, we've seen him before, Milwaukee Brewers closer, before Haters, you know, true emergence to taking that job. Then he had the injury. We saw him pitch really well for the Dodgers in the bullpen. I think we're going to see him come out and have a very good season for Philly. Again, a good lineup um, and a good division where close games are going to be played. At number 12, I have Araldis Chapman. Everything you said about Araldis Chapman is why I am not valuing Kenley Jansen among uh, higher than that 10th position. We've seen Araldis Chapman over the past couple of years kind of get more opportunities and then kind of struggle and then have dominant periods and then struggle more. And Aaron Boone did come out this season and say, you know, we want to use him more in the eighth inning to keep him in the game action. So he's not having prolonged periods of time off. And a few analysts said it perfectly. Well, if you're, if you're using him in the eighth, who's to say you don't have three save opportunities after that opportunity. So with that being said, all this Chapman has to come in at number 12 for me. Uh, number 13, I actually have Scott Barlow for the uh, Royals. I like him a lot more than Joe uh, Barlow. Um, I just think ultimately the Royals are going to play closer games. They're going to be competitive this season. As they add more talent going throughout the season, that will lead to more wins. So I think Scott gets more opportunities. Um, at 14, I have Andrew Kittredge. I will not touch a raise closer. I will not draft a raise closer. I will not pick up a raise closer. But I do think Andrew Kittredge has that job. And I think he has the arm ability to be a good closer. My concern is the front office and overall that team, the Rays organization likes to use analytics a lot. And I feel like that may limit his opportunities to get long-term saves. And then at 15, I have Joe Barlow. Um, I am not sold on the Rangers. I don't think the Rangers win 70 games this season. I don't think Joe Barlow keeps his job. Um, and that's a lot being said, but their rotation is an absolute disaster. And I, I just don't think that when you have to go up against the Mariners, when you have to go up against the Astros, and you also have to go up against the Angels, that you're going to be in many ball games. And 70 wins for me equates to about 30 saves, maybe. I would rather have Scott. And honestly, I'd rather have Andrew Kittredge for that. Yeah, we'll see what happens. I think the Rangers could provide, and he showed great promise. I just wanted to uh, touch base on a, a few closer committees that if somebody um, kind of emerges as the closer, I think would easily jump into my top 
10 to 15 range. And that's uh, Paul Seawald or Diego Castillo for the Seattle Mariners. There's also Ken Giles there, but he's kind of dealing with injuries. So that's a three-headed monster that I don't want to touch unless I am in a saves or holds league. And the same goes for the San Francisco Giants with Jake McGee or Camilo Duvall. If one's the clear-cut guy, I think they easily uh, jump into at least top 12 there for me. And then somebody who's not in my top 15, but somebody who's still worthy of getting in a, a pickup is uh, Mark Melanson, closer for the Arizona Diamondbacks. Doesn't look like he has too much competition outside of Ian Kennedy, which I don't personally believe in. He's getting older. And then lastly, Garrett Whitlock and Matt Barnes are kind of in a closer committee up there in uh, Boston Red Sox. Garrett Whitlow has kind of been getting stretched out, so I don't know if they plan on using him as a starter. Matt Barnes was great last year. However, he faltered at the end and kind of gave up that closer role and it kind of turned into a committee. So that scares me, and that's why I don't have him inside my top 15. And that that's kind of all the, the closers outside of Lucas Sims for the Cincinnati Reds. They kind of lost their team, kind of going into a rebuild. He's also injured and going to be on the IL to start the season. Uh, I don't think he would have qualified for my top 15 anyways, but just some other relievers to note that aren't in our top 15. Matt, any comments on those or any other relievers you want to touch on before we go? Yeah, I mean, I'll just throw out some of the Sparps that we really like. We didn't include Sparps in these rankings for the specific purpose that, you know, this is RP. This is going to be the closers rankings. Uh, Ranger Suarez, probably you and I's favorite Sparp this season. Michael Kopech, another big favorite of mine and yours. Uh, Rasmussen down there in Tampa. I think he has a lot of opportunity this season. Uh, and then kind of a guy that I want to keep my eye on. He's a guy I rostered last year, Carlos Hernandez for the Royals. I liked some of his games. I'd like to see a little more consistency, but he is Sparp eligible this season. I think those three guys could really add some benefit in points leagues if you're looking to have an extra start. Uh, Nestor Cortez, I think the hype's kind of too high on him. I'd stay away from him as a Sparp this season. Uh, Jake McGee, possible closer opportunity there in um, with the Giants in San Francisco. I do think that he is not going to have the job, but he ha might have an opportunity two or three weeks to lock down some saves. Uh, Duvall really is a guy that I like and shows the arm talent that I want to see out of a closer. Last guy I will mention, though, is Michael Lorenzen, the former uh, Cincinnati Red. He has promised a starting rotation spot with the Angels. I love Lorenzen. Overall, just a fun character. Uh, obviously, he has a good bat with him as well. We won't see that anymore. But I think he could be a guy late in drafts, maybe in a 15-team league, where if you need a fifth or sixth starter or your first start on the bench, Lorenzen would be a great opportunity because he does bring that spark opportunity. Look for him late in drafts. Yeah, I like Michael Lorenzen. It's just he's another guy where I'm kind of on that wait and see. I want to see at least three, four starts where he's consistently putting up great numbers before I can invest in him. But that concludes our rankings for every single position. The next time we'll be talking will be right before opening day. So I'm excited. Hopefully you guys all do great in your drafts. And that does it for us tonight. Take care, guys.